from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots, among others. Buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is A brand new kid to show biz With knowledge I persevere But for now do me a favor, favor. Let me in here Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space And drop the bass with a taste of light Summer break continues to be awesome, and I make no apologies for that. I've actually started working on the novel again, so I'm making progress on important work. I'm six chapters out of 26 left to go, so that's three-thirteenths of the book remaining for me to work on here in this second draft. And I'm making progress, which is good. Hopefully I'll be done by the end of the summer. I can start sending that sucker off to publishers, agents, somebody who can help me out with the getting it into people's hands thing. And I also want to start by saying a big shout-out to Susan O'Connor, who used to sit next to me in uh, high school English class at Buholtz High School. Go Bobcats! In Gainesville, Florida. Now she's a damn acting superstar. She's been on Broadway and Law and & Order, and she just shot for Boardwalk Empire. She's also doing a web series called Lucy Knows Love, and you can help make it happen through Kickstarter. I will put a link on the show notes and all that. Uh, and one more thing before we get started with the current events is that Karen Klein, the bus lady, there's an update now. She got, I think they've raised like $600,000 for her by now, and she's headed, this is an article from the Boston something, uh, she headed to Boston for her getaway, going on a vacation or something, arriving Thursday at Logan Airport, she was picked up in a green, <laughs> a green Dodge Charger super stretch limo, and brought to the Collindale Hotel in Boston, WGRZ reported, Klein met her benefactor, the guy who started the Kickstarter, uh, in Rochester before heading off to Beantown, so that's awesome news, I really like to see stories having a happy ending, and so yeah, what else is going on? Unfortunately, there's not a lot of good news happening in the world right now. Syria appears to be in an all-out actual war, and uh, yeah... That's no good. There was, of course, the Supreme Court ruling that said that Obamacare was constitutional for the most part. Um, and then there was the other ruling about the Arizona immigration law. You can find all sorts of information about those things uh, elsewhere. I'm not the best qualified person to talk about those rulings or their implications. I was happy to see that Obamacare was upheld, but anybody who knows me knows that I'm not happy with even that advancement. It feels like a baby step, and we need some sort of universal health care system like they have in every other freaking country on the planet. It's like on The Simpsons when Homer's trying to figure out how to pay for his heart surgery. And he's like, don't you worry, Marge. The medical system in the United States is second only to Canada, Japan, Spain, Germany, France. Well, all of Europe. But you can thank your lucky stars that we don't live in Paraguay. Um... Yeah, the two stories I've picked out of the news feed this week uh, are both horrifying and sad and depressing. But you know what? Sometimes that's the way things be. It bees like that sometimes, the way uh, New Kingdom said, right? All right, so here's the first story. is this uh, independent filmmaker named Natasha Smith, and uh, she was gang molested in Egypt. It's freaking horrible. 
It was a horrifying set of circumstances that unfortunately is not unknown to people who follow Egyptian politics. The same thing happened to um, uh, Laura Logan. She was, uh, yeah, she, the same thing happened to her when she was in um, Egypt. And it's freaking horrifying. And the amazing grace moment here is that uh, after this horrifying incident, you know, and she was, the whole reason she was there was to sort of document the horrible situation that a lot of women are in, in Egypt. And so, uh, yeah, she experienced this horrifying incident, which, as she points out, uh, is not sort of... It's not an isolated case, and that's part of the problem why she went to Egypt to report on it. And so she wrote this in her blog post, quote, I am determined to continue with my documentary at some point. I have no equipment, not even any of my photos. They ripped the camera from her and destroyed it. I am nervous about the possibility of not getting my insurance to cover all the equipment and some, everything taken from me and no money to resume the process. But I'll get there. I have to find a silver lining to this experience. I have to spread awareness. It is my duty to do so. I have to do this. I will not be driven into submission. I will overcome this and come back stronger and wiser. My documentary will be fueled by a passion to make people aware of just how serious this issue is and that it's not just a passing news story that briefly gets people's attention and then is forgotten. There is a consistent trend. This is a consistent trend and it has to stop. And those of us who have been involved in East Timor solidarity work for so many years probably hear echoes of ourselves in that, uh, obviously without having gone through anything uh, even remotely as horrifying as what she experienced. But that's what solidarity looks like. And once again, I think, you know, if people are going to be committed to something, it's really remarkable to me that they don't let the serious uh, pain and suffering and violence that they undergo uh, cause them to stop. I don't know. Anyway, uh, there's another story that came out from the United States recently. This is in the Washington Post. Uh, the headline was, Uninsured and Fighting Blazes. A lot of the freaking firefighters who are going after these fires every year, these wildfires, they go on every year, and there's a lot we can say about how they're connected to global warming. Yes, okay. Uh, but um, a lot of them don't have health insurance. That's the, the, the news item here. Thousands of federal firefighters charged with taming the blazes do not have health insurance. It's the same thing we saw after 9-11, man, with a lot of those responders. See Michael Moore's movie Sicko if you haven't seen it. Uh, of all the jobs where you might want health insurance, firefighting nearly certainly ranks near the top of the list. Firefighters spend two-week shifts working 18-hour days in dangerous conditions. Some develop breathing problems due to smoke inhalation. But many federal firefighters are temporary employees who only work six months out of the year. Though, as this one guy Lauer describes it, they can often work a full year's worth of hours with the long shifts. Under federal regulations, temporary employees of the Forest Service do not receive benefits. That means no health care and no retirement pension. Quote, a lot of them are not making a lot, says Bill Duggan, president of the National Federal Federation, maybe, of federal employees. The only way they can afford insurance is if they have a spouse that might be able to get coverage under an employer. In some places, that's not an option. Duggan's group represents all temporary federal firefighters. He estimates there are 15,000 to 20,000 of them which is a disgrace. This is horrifying, and it's one more example of why we actually need a single-payer system, because then it wouldn't be temporary employee, full-time employee, none of that. It would just be everybody. Are you a human? Okay, you get to have medical care. See, that's the way it should be, because that's the way an enlightened society thinks, and I'm sure the Brits have all sorts of horror stories about why the healthcare system is screwed up over there, and maybe you can let me know your horror stories about working with National Health Service, but... Are, are, would you folks actually prefer a system like ours? Would you rather not know and, and whether you're going to get treated for something or not? Would you rather be terrified that if you lose your job, you lose your health insurance? Because I can't imagine having it and thinking, oh, I don't want this anymore. All I can think about is, well, I'm a freaking single pair of I'm
economics now. We're just rocking in through this. We'll be done in 20 minutes. Um, I finally found somebody who was talking about why high-frequency uh, high, high trading has made markets more efficient. That was the headline of this interview with a guy named Larry Tab uh, from the Wall Street Journal. And uh, it reminds me of The Simpsons when he's working at home. And he's like, uh, I think I'll order a tab. And he's pressing the tab button on his keyboard. Freaking hilarious. Uh, okay, so the Wall Street Journal has asked, do you think the Securities and Exchange Commission should do anything to help the situation? They have proposed a consolidated audit trail or a CAT, C-A-T, which would track almost all trading. Would that give investors more confidence that the market is fair? And he says, and this is a guy who's defending high-frequency trading. He says, not only is the consolidated audit trail a must, the regulators need the analytics and the people to properly understand the information. As million share orders get broken into 200 share trades, it becomes very hard to understand how these 5,000 trades get executed. It's also difficult to understand how market makers and liquidity providers interact with these orders. Was the large order sniffed out? Did the liquidity provider realize that there was a large order in the market and the push the price up? Did the large order steamroll over the market? So a database is not the only thing that regulators need, but without it, analytics and smart people can't solve the problem. The consolidated audit trail is at the heart of the problem with U.S. equity markets. Without the CAT, the regulators are flying blind and can't say one way or another that the market is fair or unbalanced. It's like a ref trying to call a game blindfolded and from outside the arena. Without the CAT, it becomes impossible to know who was playing fair and who was playing street ball. So there you go right there, man. This guy is adamant that high-frequency trading is a good thing, and even he is saying we need an audit trail. Come on, man. You got to listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. I'm not insane. And in other news, U.S. automakers cut retirees loose. That was the headline from a Business Week article about the elderly former workers of these U.S. car makers, and they're looking to cut costs, and so paying the retirement pensions of old people, obviously that's a cost. It's just a drain, and that's what it says. <coughs> the plans are a huge drain. Ford this year is pumping $3.5 billion into its pensions and won't catch up until at least mid-decade, and because pension funds are invested in securities, their values can rise or fall unexpectedly. Buyouts would remove some volatility and liabilities from automakers' books. In other words, sell the pension off, and then it's somebody else's problem. Them, and those people are going to then juggle with it and try to make more money off of it and then they don't and everything goes bad and suddenly they're like well we don't know and the old people have to decide whether they're going to eat cat food or dog food for dinner this is ridiculous this is that whole thing about externalizing costs for years the companies are like hey we're going to get the best people to work here and give them this generous pension benefit as a way to get them to be loyal to the company and to keep working hard and all that hoopla and now that the company doesn't need them anymore suddenly they're just a liability these old people are just a big drain never mind that they built the damn wealth for the company that is now soaring majestically and the reason why the CEO gets the millions of dollars every year for his bonus is that wouldn't have happened without these workers working on the factory line for all these years but now that the company doesn't need them well they're just a drain and there's something to be traded and invested in securities it's pathetic there ought to be a law in the united states that says that when you employ somebody over a certain size if you have a certain number of employees fine i'm okay with that uh and you make a certain amount of profit then you have to invest that money into the pension and never touch it it should be like you know, it's like if you were to buy a building and then you're like, well, you know, we can do this in a different building. You move out of the building and then you just tear the building down. Like, duh, that's what happens with buildings. Old people are not buildings, okay? There's my headline for this show. Old people are not buildings. And Stewart sent me a thing. Oh, man, speaking of bank brouhaha, it's going on in Britain, too. 
uh, Barclays was hit with a $200 million, excuse me, $200 million pound fine. The Financial Services Authority fired, fined Barclays a record £60 million, pounds, saying staff at the bank had repeatedly made false submissions to help set the London Interbank Offered Rate LIBOR. The rate is used to fix the cost of borrowing on mortgages, loans, and derivatives worth more than $450 trillion, $288 trillion pounds globally. Barclays chief executive Bob Diamond and three of the bank's senior managers, including finance director Chris Lucas, said they would not take bonuses this year as a result of the regulator's findings. And I'm sure all the Brits right now are like, he's going all over the place with this stupid freaking accent. Now it's London. Now it's Edinburgh. Now it's freaking Manchester. We can't tell what your stupid accent's supposed to be. However, one major shareholder said the move was insufficient and claimed senior executives should be forced to resign. Imagine that. Senior executives being forced to resign. You communists, that would never happen here in America because they worked hard for their money. Why are you trying to punish success? And Just because he committed a little fraud and criminality, that doesn't mean he should step down. God damn, you communists are something else. And then there was a follow-up in The Guardian called A Black Week for Banking, and uh, it said, to their, credit, to their credit, the commissioners on the Vickers inquiry proposed stronger reforms than seemed likely. The key proposal is that banks should construct a fence between their investment banking activities and their basic retail operations. Kind of like a reintroduction of Glass-Steagall in the United States, but apparently that's out of the question. You communists, you trying to split up investment banking and basic retail operations? You know who did that? Hitler did that! And also Stalin! At the same time, they did it at the same time. You want that to happen here in the United States? I don't think so. Shut up, singing kids. Buildings are people. And people are buildings. Old people, especially. Um, yeah, a couple quick things about education this week. Number one comes from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh, this is so sad. It's called, uh, why a teacher explains why she gave up a career she loved. This is from a woman who has been teaching for 10 years. She says, I decided to quit teaching. Maybe not forever, but definitely for a year or two. This is not a decision I came to lightly, and I did not feel triumphant in it at all. To be frank, I had never felt more defeated in my life. I have lost my faith in public education. That means that it's time to walk away. It started last year when I was chair of the student support team, which addresses the needs of struggling students. I watched the neediest of students get declined services while the most deceptive of parents use their lawyers to manipulate the system into giving their children unfair advantage. I saw so many students and teachers hurt in this process, so many adults whose sole concern was not education or the well-being of children, so many lawyers and politicians who cared nothing about learning that I broke. My classes were too big. If I work six-hour days with no breaks, it takes 28 days to grade essays for my 159 students. That is for one semester. I am an English teacher. My kids must write. I must grade it. I actually enjoy grading, but 159 is too much. 28 days is too much. This isn't a decision I am proud of. I will ultimately be happier for leaving teaching. I will make more money, I will have more time, and I will no longer neglect myself for the sake of others' children. I would like to go back someday when the system finally figures out how lucky it is that people are willing to teach. End quote. A freaking man, lady! See, and this is the thing. Okay, I know, look. I, I know that I spent a lot of time playing video games and goofing around and reading and writing books and all this stuff. But when she says... um. <clears throat> neglect myself for the sake of others' children, I feel like that's a serious thing that a lot of teachers wrestle with. I've said before that I don't think there's a teacher on the planet who doesn't wrestle with some form of insomnia. I think that we all, we give up a lot. 
And and that's not to put ourselves on a cross or to say like, oh, poor us, you know, whatever. It's just to say, this is how hard we're working. All we want is for people to just listen to us when we tell you what it's like to be a teacher and what we think will help the kids. That's what we want more than anything else, okay? I'll say that right here and now. And that's true for me, certainly. And I know it's true for a lot of other teachers, too, okay? What we want is for people to listen to us and for people to respect what we say and to recognize that we know a couple of things about what it's like to educate a child. I actually came across a really good quote this week uh, from Cesar Peveze, and I don't know who he is really, uh, but he said this, you cannot insult a man more atrociously than by refusing to believe he is suffering. And I really feel like that's what a lot of people, that's the attitude a lot of people have when it comes to education reform in this country. But even beyond that, like I would be willing to say, and I've said before, that if, if, okay, if this suffering, insomnia, and all the stuff, headaches and everything is necessary for the benefit of the children, that would be one thing. And I would say, look, even in that situation, you know, we need a revolution on the way to the revolution. I don't believe, as uh, uh, Nader said, that we have to become basically like vows of poverty and you, this is not just a job and you, you give up everything when you work here and blah, blah, blah. I don't believe that's necessary, uh, although many of us who are in the 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 movement for lack of a better term of education for a real positive progressive purpose to uplift the well-being materially and spiritually of the entire world um we we would probably devote i do devote a lot of my free time to the same mission in different formats anyway but even if that were the case uh even if I were willing to sacrifice it all, if it benefited students, that would be something totally different. But 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 we are totally ignored when we say, well, here's what we think needs to be done to help children. And it's just assumed that our opinion means nothing. And as I've said, research is fine, but, but our experience as educators also ought to matter. And this has to do with professionalism and we'd be treated like a professional and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, there's some good news from education. Uh, actually, two good news stories about education. Woohoo! We're ending education on a positive note. Uh, the NCLB law, No Child Left Behind. Five states were granted waivers. Five more states. There are others, apparently, uh, from the uh, NCLB law. Arkansas, Missouri, South Dakota, Utah, and Virginia will be freed from the No Child Left Behind requirement that all students test proficient in math and science by 2014, a goal the nation remains far from achieving. Now, this is not sour grapes. Like, we never wanted that money anyway. Uh, and sour grapes is often used wrong. You should look up the actual story of the sour grapes. It doesn't mean you just, you act like you hate the thing or you're just mad because you lost. Sour, in the original sour, hang on, tangent. In the original sour grape story, the fox decided that since he couldn't reach the grapes, he decided we didn't want, I never wanted those grapes in the first place. So he tries to convince himself that, the, the, that something different was true in the past. And that's what we should mean when we are using sour grapes. So now you know. Anyway, um, but this isn't that. This isn't just people being like, ha-ha, no child left behind sucks, and we all know it. Uh, and it's not about trying to let schools off the hook if they're not doing a good job teaching the kids. The, the point is that the, the entire thing was a setup move to begin with to say that every school in the country had to be proficient in math and science by 2014 I mean, it's just not possible. And and the in that Diane Ravitch Michelle Re forum that I posted a couple of weeks ago, 
one of the commentators on the panel, uh, actually, I have his book because my school district is awesome and they ordered me a copy. Woo! Angel, Angel L. Harris, uh, Kids Don't Want to Fail, Oppositional Culture and the Black-White Achievement Gap. I can't wait to read that after I get done with Blood Meridian and Predator Nation. and Oh, I just finished Michelle Alexander, the freaking new Jim Crow. Oh, my God, you all have to read that. Stop what you're doing and write yourself a note. The new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander, must read this book. It's the most important book about American society it may be the most important book about American society in the 21st century by far. I think it is. Um, but but it's, it's, it's about what needs to change so desperately. And it says so many things so beautifully. And there are so many points where I've probably said this before. I'm going to say it again, damn it. Uh, there, <laughs> I would never read that book. You don't know me. Maybe I would read Michelle Alexander. I'm not even going to ask your name, sir. I'm just going to ask you to pipe down while I'm doing this podcast. Shut up. You can't tell me what to do. Hey, get off me. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> You're not related to Thomas, are you? What was that guy's name? Thomas? Brian? Whatever. Um, what was I saying? Keep it together, Piotrowski. Uh, the point is this. The, the no, Michelle Alexander book is awesome. And and, and this this whole... Inc- so anyway, okay. The guy... Who, you just pulled his name up. Moron. Angel L. Harris on the panel said that expecting that schools are going to be able to close the achievement gap in 5, 10, 20 years shows a lack of appreciation for the magnitude of the problem. Uh, And he says it would be akin to going into a cancer ward uh, in a hospital and saying, we want you to eradicate cancer in the next 10 years. And and it's, it's, it's probably impossible to do that. And that doesn't mean that people don't take it seriously or they don't have a sense of urgency about cancer. It continues to kill people, just as poor education hurts a lot of people, you know, especially in black and poor communities. But to, 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 to minimize the significance of the problem is what happens when we put these draconian measures, merit pay and high stakes testing accountability, it, it's, it's, it's shooting ourselves in the foot. And it's raising these false hopes uh, and, and, and getting people to believe that certain things are possible when we don't believe that they are, when they're probably not possible. Uh, anyway, in exchange, the states and all other granted waivers uh, must develop accountability plans that set new targets for raising achievement, advancing teacher effectiveness, preparing all students for careers in college, and improving the performance of low-performing schools. All of which are good goals. There's no question about it. Uh, my biggest problem with the NCLB is how do you measure it? A and B, what's up with this crazy accelerated timetable? And C, where's the money? Because you can't mandate things unless you give us money. It's called an unfunded mandate. Look it up! Quote, we all understand the best ideas don't come from Washington. Now, this is Secretary of Education Arne Duncan, who I have a lot of problems with, but anyway, this is what he said. We all understand the best ideas don't come from Washington, and moving forward, these states will have increased flexibility with federal funds and relief from NCLB's mandates, allowing them to develop t- locally tailored solutions to meet their unique educational challenges. Okay, so duh. Arne Duncan, I think, is very good at saying the bleeding obvious and saying, some th- saying things that both sides will look at and go, yeah, I agree with that, which is fine, but then when he champions this business model of education reform model, uh, I get very nervous and angry and blah, blah, blah. And you know who else gets mad at the business model of education is Chilean students. There were 150 freaking thousand of them on the streets recently. It was amazing. The article has photographs, and this is from The Nation, and it was the headline is Chilean students demand education reform. In addition to high school and college students, the College of Professors and the United Confederation of Workers, CUT, uh, among many other groups, colored the streets with their flags and songs. The march, which according to its student organizers summoned around 150,000 people, was held to demand an end to profit 
profiteering in education and a call for free and quality education to all Chilean students, the mantra of the education movement that has reverberated over the last year. The proposal in April by Education Minister Harold Beyer for a new university funding plan that would remove private banks from the loan process and decrease interest rates from 6% to 2% was something, but too little too late, according to the president of the University of Chile Student Federation, FECH, Gabriel Boric, who dismissed the reform. Quote, we don't want to trade debt for debt, which is what the government is offering us. Yes, you tell them, Gabriel Boric. Um, yeah. So get your learn on. I was listening to Jean Grey. She has a thing about it. Learn. Get your learn on. Have I talked about Jean Grey? I don't think I have. I need to do her uh, as a featured hip-hop artist soon. Kill all humans. And now... Kill all humans. The miscellaneous fire. kill all humans. Bender, wake up! I was having the most wonderful dream. I think you were in it. Uh, uh listen, Bender. Uh, uh, where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom! What, what? Ah, never mind. Mm. Hey, sexy mama. Wanna kill all humans? Uh, this week, uh, so a couple articles about robots and then some other stuff as well. I, robot, am a stupid trader. This is from the Wall Street Journal as well. And it's about a robot who trades stocks in a stupid way that's deliberately stupid whatever here it is the latest breakthrough in trading technology is a computer that picks stocks based on stupid human superstitions Xing Ta-chung a recent graduate of the Royal College of Art in London of art is fascinated by superstition and irrationality he has investigated Feng Shui and numerology among other magical beliefs among the fund's potential inputs are the phases of the moon and avoidance of the number 13 Chung has said he was inspired partly by a by word of a London trader who made bets based on which direction the ni- I'm not making this up this is from the Wall Street Journal based on which direction the nipples of the daily bikini model are pointing on page 3 of the British tabloid newspaper the sun that's a sound way to invest your money and don't forget a lot of these people are not just betting with their money they're also betting with the freaking pension plans of Ford and GM Okay, so when you hear this stuff, a lot of times we hear this, we're like, that's crazy. Why would someone throw their money away like that? It's not just their money. As long as the investment part of this bank and the commercial part of this bank are not separated by a firewall or a fence, as we said in that previous article, then it's going to be partly your money too and the old man's money who is depending on that check for medicine and food and it's the money that's going to deal with everything it's it's all it's all connected it all matters no word yet on performance but a house plant did pretty well at predicting stock prices in sweden a decade ago again i'm not making this up the link is in the article i it's i'm i can't make this stuff up people given how bad most quote-unquote rational humans are at predicting markets maybe picking stocks with a computer intentionally programmed to be stupid isn't such a bad idea from the wall street journal so whenever you tell me that markets are rational and we don't need to monitor markets for irregularities and the market will regulate itself no it won't okay the market the computers are picking things based on nipple directions and freaking house plants okay so don't tell me about markets being rational because i don't believe that nipple direction and house plants are rational there's the subtitle old people are not buildings and nipples and house plants are not rational <sighs> and then they're going to take over the dj booth too 
Because there's this thing, DJ Robot destined to liven up parties by 2013. So they're going to go crazy and ruining all our money with betting on nipples and houseplants. And then the robots will go, don't worry, let's get wild up in here. Throw your hands in the air and wave them like you don't mind that your pension is being invested with nipples and houseplants. And everyone will go, whoa, yeah, party over here. Oh, this guy's dope. He's got fresh flow. And you'll go, but wait a minute. He's talking about how they want to eat all humans. And you're like, whatever, hair. Why you got to hate? He's got some skin. You need to recognize. Just because he's a robot don't mean nothing. Damn, hip-hop is accepting of everybody. Why you got to hate on the fact that he's a robot? She. Uh, Georgia Tech's Center for Music Technology have developed Shimi, a musical robot designed to DJ dance parties everywhere. Not in my house, he's not. That's what I have iPod Shuffle for. Uh, the smartphone-enabled robot is considered an interactive musical buddy that recommends songs based on feedback from the listeners. So if 93% of the people say, hey, instead of ho, then you know that that's where you need to put the next song is with Naughty by Nature. Quote, Shimi is designed to change the way that people enjoy and think about their music. You know what? I don't want to change the way I think and enjoy my music. I like thinking about music and enjoying music the way I have always enjoyed it, is by listening to things I like and trying to find other things that are like the things I like and occasionally expanding my horizons to find new things that I might also like. There's nothing wrong with that system. We don't need robots in that equation, do we? Had there been people demanding this? I want a robot who will help me find better music. Oh, God, said Professor Gil Weinberg, director of Georgia Tech Center for Music Technology and the Robots Creator, said in a recent statement. Uh, now, if I'm doing stereotypical British accents for British news stories, maybe I should do a stereotypical Jewish accent for Gil Weinberg? Maybe? I don't know. Perhaps. I'm just asking is all. The robot works in accordance with a smartphone app, which can be programmed to control how it gains the sensing and music-generating capabilities. Shimi can use a smartphone's camera and face-detecting software to follow a listener around the room and position its speakers toward them for optimal sound. I wonder what's going to happen once the facial detecting software... Okay, we've set up the speakers. Turn off the facial detecting software. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. You look upset. Maybe you would like to listen to some Orbital. How about Halcyon and on and on? I don't want to... No, don't play any music right now. Um... Dear Eric, please don't ever sing any Orbital song ever again. No, no, no. Let me do Nothing Left now. Nothing Left. All right. As long as you don't ever do Charlie, we'll be okay. Charlie says... I'm sending out of space. Oh, God, he's going to do every Prodigy song now. Forget Psych. I'm trying to roll his freaking gym, man. And he's butchering him. He's making him sound like Ned Flanders. That's not the words he used, man. I got the poison. I got the remedy. I got the pulsating rhythmical melody. Anyway, uh... The robot can also use recognition software to sense if someone claps or taps a tempo to play a song that best matches the suggestion. That's the only thing that's useful with this robot. If you were to go, you like, I can't remember which Prodigy song it was that I want to hear. Is it perhaps Voodoo People? No, not that one. Poison? No, not that one. Invaders Must Die? No, no, no. It goes like this. And the robot will go, oh, you mean their law. What we're dealing with here is a massive violation of the law. That's not the line I know, but it's something like that. Anyway, um, speaking of Stu, hey, he probably enjoyed that little diversion. And he also sent me the article about Royal Bank of Scotland computer glitch causes headaches. Already there have been reports that doctors in Mexico threatened to turn off a dying girl's life support because Nat West did not transfer money owed to the hospital looking after her. And at least one couple, uh, at least one couple claimed to have seen a house purchase collapse because payment did not go through. 
studying my own bank account, I noticed that while money owed to me has not been paid in, cash has still been going out with ruthless efficiency, although I haven't been able to establish whether it has reached its intended recipients. Later in the article, last year I was visiting a major think tank in Washington, D.C. on the same day that BlackBerry's email server went down. This is awesome. This is one of the happiest things I've seen in the news in a long time. I observed an outbreak of collective neurosis as the staff, most of whom had some form of graduate degree, suffered minor breakdowns as a consequence of not being able to check their email every five minutes. Similar behavior was reported worldwide last week when Twitter, Twitter went down for a few hours. It's a major event when any of this stuff goes down. This is why, in a way, I kind of wish we... You know that Twilight Zone where all the electricity just goes off for no reason and people start freaking out and this neighborhood starts turning on themselves and then at the end you look at the aliens looking down and go, see, take away one little piece and the whole thing collapses. And, and then they go, oh, ha, 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 it's Kang and Kodos. Oh, ha, 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 ha. Um, it, that would, dude, if cell phones suddenly stopped working for some reason you would have that same thing. I mean, my classroom, people would start, like, soiling themselves and crying. It's, it, I, I, I challenged my students one time, be like, give up your cell phone every day for a week while you're in here. And I, after the first day, they were all like, uh-uh, give it back. No way, buddy boy. You ain't keeping this. I'm dying of boredom now. <sighs> um, meanwhile, in Brazil, you can get out of prison if you read. How cool is that? Inmates, I mean, okay, I mean, it's not just, it's not like Jeffrey Dahmer's going to read, you know, hop on pop. It's so tragic the way they hopped on pop. Uh, and then suddenly just be like, I get to be out of prison now. Uh, no, here's what it says. Inmates in four federal prisons holding some of Brazil's most notorious criminals will be able to read up to 12 works of literature, philosophy, science, or classics to trim a maximum 48 days off their sentence each year, the government announced. Quote, a person can leave prison more enlightened and with an enlarged vision of the world, said Sao Paulo lawyer Andre Kedi, who heads a book donation project for prisons and this is comes back to that same question about is it is it punishment or is it rehabilitation do we actually do we just want to hurt these people or do we want to help them get healed so that they can they'll be less likely to commit crime in the future because for me like it was you know we talk about justice absolutely and in the abstract it makes sense we i understand somebody commits a crime they need to be punished yes i get that but Ultimately, what I'm in this regard, I'm pretty much a utilitarian. I want to see the crime rate go down. I want to see people not committing crime anymore in the future. And the number one thing that makes that happen is helping these people heal. Uh, he, he hurt people, hurt people, and healed people, heal people. As uh, God, I can never remember her name, Angela Davis's sister. Uh, anyway, um, yeah. So. It's a really, I, I think this is a great program. Go Brazil. Awesome. Meanwhile, the New Yorker had an amazing story. And in, in between the time when I put this in my show notes and when I recorded the show, uh, I had, I met somebody this week and who, this week and, which is this weekend you speak of, uh, who was quoting it at a party. So I was like, dude, I read that story. How about that? I feel so smart and erudite. Uh, the headline is why are Americans kids so spoiled? And the, the best thing is, uh, the best line in the whole article is from the New Yorker. It says, with the exception of the imperial offspring of the Ming dynasty and the Dauphins of pre-revolutionary France, contemporary American kids may represent the most indulged young people in the history of the world. And it's this whole interesting contrast between, and these are all case studies. These are all anecdotal evidence. Fine. I get that. Um, but, I think it's true. Um, <laughs> how about this? The kids who are being spoiled are the most spoiled people in the history of the world. Uh, and because not every kid's being spoiled in the same way, and it differs from region to region and urban versus rural and suburban and all the rest of it and social status and class and all the rest of it. Anyway, um, but they, they followed these kids. There, there's people who are on this expedition in the Amazon or something, and they witnessed these kids who were like, 
six and seven years old, and they were like catching the fish and frying it up and cleaning up and you know all this stuff, offering things to other people and just being very mature in how they were interacting with the world. And then they cut to some examples of things in the United States where my favorite example of a kid who wouldn't or put, in, put on a shoe because it was tied, he demands that the dad untie it before he puts it on. He's like, untie it. And the dad's like, what do we say? And he goes, please untie it. And he like rolls his eyes and like, please untie it. Untie it your damn self, kid. What do you need your dad to untie your shoe for you? What? Man, I'd be like, how are you going to get it on your foot if it's tied? They'd be like, you're supposed to untie it. I'm like, why is that? And he'd go, because I'm going to be, if I ever, I mean, heaven for fan, look. You know, okay, I'm knocking on wood right there. I can barely take care of myself and my dog. But I'm saying, though. This is the approach I take with all my kids. I think, and in the long run, I think this article reinforces the idea, the more you help them now, the more you hurt them in the long term, all right? Because if you make everything easy for them, they aren't going to lose their minds when they get out there in the world. And at some point, it's going to happen, and you're not going to be there when they need to have the ability to deal with something coming at them. And I'll tell you right now, I see it all the time in my students, because I show them Barton Fink. Again, talk about people crying and wetting their pants. People have no idea how to deal with this movie, and I'm right there, like, sort of holding their hands. I'm like, I will answer some questions. I will help you understand this. But they can't deal with it. They're just like, that's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. You suck. That movie sucks, and I hate everything about everything now. Because blah, 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 blah. Because all their lives, they've only been spoon-fed media and materials that answer everything for them. And the only thinking they've ever had to do in school, for instance, is how do I scam my way into getting a better grade? And that's not okay. We've got to challenge them more. And I'll tell you this, the people I know who have challenged their kids and demanded that their kids, you know, pull their own weight and do chores and, you know, not get everything they want, etc., etc., I see their kids growing up strong and proud. So I will tell you, man, if you've got kids, hey, people, again, the more you help them now, the more you're hurting them long term. Now, that's not to say, like, you throw them out there to get eaten by a bear or something like that. I'm not advocating a Ron Swanson uh, school of child rearing, but... Uh, it's got to be a balance, man. It's got to be a balance. Uh, and finally, I read this article about Malcolm Gladwell's life and work. And this is from Naked Capitalism, which is Eve Smith's blog, which is really interesting. It got very technical very quickly, so I kind of unsubscribed from it. And she's also one of these people, kind of like Dan Ravitch, unfortunately, who posts a 100 things every day. So my feed of, of you know blogs and things, it filled up instantly every day. Like, I wake up and there'll be 20 posts from Eve Smith, and there's 20 posts from Diane Ravitch every day when I wake up. Now, during the summer, I have time to kind of go through it and be like, okay, what's worth reading and what's not? But with Eve Smith, I was eventually, especially during the school year, I was like, no, uh -uh, I'm not taking the time to sift through the things you post on your feed. That's too much. So anyway, uh, but this article is about Malcolm Gladwell. And Malcolm Gladwell is this guy who wrote, he wrote a book called Outliers. He wrote one called The Tipping Point, which I feel like was a ripoff of my senior thesis at New College, but we don't have time to get into that now. Uh, anyway, he's got this very sort of iconoclastic way of looking at the world, and he's like edgy and different. And he's like, everything you know from common sense is wrong. It turns out killing people isn't always a bad thing, because, you know, stabbing people... Okay, see, because I... You say that, and people will be like, well, sometimes killing you. I know, I know. Ah, stabbing your grandma in the eyes sometimes is a good thing. So, whatever. That's the kind of thing Malcolm Gladwell might say. Um, it turns out he's a total corporate shell. I had no idea. I didn't realize it because I always felt like, eh, he's kind of smarmy and annoying, but I never really knew why I shouldn't like him. Guess what? There's good reasons to not like him. He once wrote a piece suggesting that anti-smoking efforts in the United States would cost our country money since people would live longer and therefore they would use up more Medicare and Social Security monies. And the monies. And uh, he, he was working at a think tank funded by the Tobacco Council or the Tobacco Institute or whatever it is uh, for a long time. So I'm not the type of person who says you can't have any journalism 
journalistic independence if you've ever had any connection with a certain industry group or whatever, but um, it, it's clear that he became the mouthpiece for them and that he was supported by some very wealthy and very powerful people because he said the right things from an industry point of view. And that's the lesson I took away from this. Uh, he once wrote a piece which argued that more kids needed prescriptions for Ritalin uh, because he was working for this tobacco, or not tobacco, yeah, because Ritalin is made by Marlboro. What are you talking about, Piotrowski? You moron, you hippie! Uh, no, it, it was, the pharmaceutical industry was sort of bankrolling this institute that he worked for or whatever it was. Um, and then he wrote a piece for uh, defending Enron-style Enron corporate fraud, which, yeah, that's a thing that needs defending. Way to go! Nice work! Absolutely, Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> Jerk face. And now for something completely different. We're going to talk about hip-hop for a little bit. And I just want to give a shout-out to everybody who said that they really appreciate this part of the show because, uh, like a lot of people, I think, um, well, okay, look, let me say this. I understand that the perspective that most people have about hip-hop in the United States and around the world, really, is one of mindless consumerism and, and gun-toting and gunplay and, 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 and degradation of women and making money and drugs and all the rest of it. Um, now, I won't deny that that's a part of the hip-hop game, and it has been since day one, because it's about, you know, largely about uh, urban underclass. Okay, you're going to get some of that, but hip-hop is about so much more as well, and it's such a shame that so many people don't know about all the other co cool things that hip-hop is and can be, and just like Scott McCloud with his understanding comic books is like, that's not what comics has to be, and and, and that stereotypical vision of what hip-hop is uh, does not have to be what hip-hop is either, and it is not what hip-hop is. And so, uh, my job, I love the fact that I can bring this out to people and be like, hey, here's this um, extra info and here are these artists for you to check out and here's a repost for everybody who says hip-hop is just about the bling, hip-hop is dead, blah, 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 and the rest of it. Um, so this week, I'm going to tell you about Rakim. Now, people who know about hip-hop and have studied it for a long time and, and love hip-hop probably already know who Rakim is and some people might be like, what about Eric B? I'm sorry, I like Eric B. I never thought he was an amazing DJ. He was a good DJ, but... Rakim is the lyricist that I want to focus on today. Uh, they came out with a couple albums back in the day. They did uh, Paid in Full was their first one, and that original song, Paid in Full, is awesome. It's sort of the same beat that Pump Up the Volume used, so if you're familiar with that song, then that's where that come from. He also had My Melody, I Ain't No Joke, on that first album. And then his second album, I think, is where they really exploded out the gate. Uh, the first one, I mean, in each case, there's some kind of filler songs uh, that I don't think are very good, but in, in especially Follow the Leader, their second album, they just knocked it out of the park. The first song is called Follow the Leader, and it's amazing, and it's beautiful and awesome. And then there's one called Microphone Fiend, which is also just glorious. And the shining light on the album, the number one top ten uh, hip-hop songs of all time, no question, and easily the number one freestyle rap ever put onto recorded material is Lyrics of Fury from Eric B. and Rakim. I'm rated all, this is a warning, you better avoid Poets and paranoid, DJs destroy Guess I came back to attack others and spike It's like, like lightning, it's quite frightening But don't be afraid in the dark, in a fog Not a scream or a cry or a bark, more like a spark I tremble like an alcoholic, muscles tighten up What's that like, no? It's a clue when I come, you're warned. Apocalypse now when I'm done, you're gone. Haven't you ever heard of an MC murderer? This is a death penalty and I'm serving a death wish. So come on, step to this hysterical idea for a lyrical professionist.
I mean, tell me that's not freaking wicked. And the whole song is like that. And it's unrelenting and it's just amazing wordplay. And he's got all these references to things and it's just unbelievable. Now, Tricky covered that track on Premillennium Tension, I think it's called. And it's not a good cover at all. The woman's all over the beat and it's their flow is just not good. And I was like, no, you've ruined it. So, um, but yeah, that's just, I, that's, I, I can't tell you how much I love Lyrics of Fury. Anytime anybody starts talking about freestyle, especially in my students, my students would be like, uh, this freestyle, I just saw one on Reddit. The hip-hop heads have one of Eminem. I'm I'm chop my legs off, and then I'm a mutant, whatever. And I was like, dude, there is never going to be a better freestyle than Lyrics of Fury. I'm sorry. There just will never be. There's so much polysyllabic rhyming there. There is so much... Uh, just the rhyme scheme varies so much, but it's not random. And he's got something to say, and he's using these extended metaphors. It's just amazing. I love that track. I love it, love it, love it. Now, Eric B. went off to do some sort of R&B type stuff. He had some song once that was like, I'm not the one, or I'm the one, or something like that. It's his love song. And uh, Rakim came and went for a little while. Uh, he did... Some, he did a track called Don't Sweat the Technique with Eric B. from, I think there was, I think maybe their last album together. Uh, and then he did a couple of solo tracks uh, for some soundtracks at one point. I know he did a song that was in Juice and just some other stuff as well. Uh, he tried to come back with one called The 17th Letter. I think it's 17, 18th Letter, whichever R is in the, in the alphabet. Um, but I think that the, his number one smash hit that he came back with was his most recent album, which was called The Seventh Seal. Uh, and it's just, oh my God, it's a great great album. Uh, now, a lot of it is sort of didactic and dogmatic, but you should like that, Eric. You're in the didactic sing cast. I know. Um, but yeah, so, and he's got this beautiful love song called You and I. Uh-huh. And this guy singing is really cool. Yeah. That's pretty loud, huh? I'll need to turn it down uh-huh. in post-production. Uh-huh. You and I will always be together. Peace or war, no matter the weather. Me and yeah, so uh, that's good stuff too. So that album was actually good. Seven Seals, good. You should check that out. Um, yeah, and there's lots of other things to say about Rakim, but we're getting it's running late, so let's keep moving. Quote of the week: Friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Stop repenting, cause the end is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You gotta listen to hear. This is from Saul Williams. We've talked about him before on the show. He's a slam poet, star of the awesome movie Slam. Uh, in a 2005 interview with CNN, he said this: "I remember back in the quote. I remember back in the day when Chuck D called hip hop the black people's CNN. Well, now hip hop is more like Fox News. It's biased and highly suspect. Hip hop is still cool at a party, but to me, hip hop has never been strictly a party. It is also there to elevate consciousness." End quote. And I'm like, yes. Uh, now I would say that there are certain things in hip hop which are elevating consciousness, and I would say, unfortunately, it kind of feels like. Saul Williams right now isn't one of them because the stuff he's putting out is, I don't know, I feel like it's weak and it's not consciousness raising, whatever. Um, But that sentiment is awesome and I have faith that someday he'll put out some more stuff like Amethyst Rockstar. All right, that's it. Enough. Show's over, folks. Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is The Floating Braining of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia I've made and lots of other stuff. Shoutouts this week to Old Spicy for the very nice iTunes review and Jason Gullaher for the Nosling and IP for the Saul Williams quote and Susan O'Connor and her awesome acting stuff and good luck with Lucy Knows Love and everybody should support her during Kickstarter and all that stuff. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy 
man, people. Deal with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening. Please get in touch with feedback or questions or news articles you find. I'm at ESP at FBESP.org. I'm going to stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.